Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. On today's episode, we have in conversation actor Harry Melling and writer-director Amanda Kramer. Melling is one of the most exciting young actors around, a performer who has been honing his craft on screen since his childhood when he played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter films. He has long eclipsed that initial breakthrough role, however, making his mark in auteur productions like James Gray's The Lost City of Z, the Coen Brothers' The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Antonio Campos's The Devil All the Time, Scott Frank's miniseries Sensation The Queen's Gambit, and most recently, Joel Cohen's awards contender The Tragedy of Macbeth. Melling spoke with Kramer over Zoom late last year when he was back in London for the holiday on hiatus from playing Edgar Allan Poe opposite Christian Bale in Scott Cooper's forthcoming historical thriller The Pale Blue Eye. The reason Kramer and Melling recorded this conversation is because Melling is the male lead in Kramer's new movie, Please Baby Please, which also stars Andrea Riseborough and Demi Moore. The film, which is a smart, provocative exploration of gender, sexuality, and relationships housed inside a colorful, boldly stylized 50s-set musical melodrama, is having its world premiere at the International Film Festival Rotterdam this week. Kramer is a brilliantly original filmmaker who made her feature debut in 2018 with the offbeat thriller Lady World, and made a splash at TalkHouse the year after with her outspoken article, Why Does Everything Look So Fucking Ugly? She also premiered her excellent short film Sin Ultra at TalkHouse, and is an officially designated friend of the site. With characteristic individuality, Kramer steered well clear of the questions that Melling is usually hit with, and so their conversation is richly diverse, touching on everything from, of course, their experiences shooting Please Baby Please during COVID in Montana, to Harry's love of dancing, why Amanda almost had a breakdown on set, actors' misplaced obsession with playing real people, how Amanda expanded Harry's love and knowledge of English cinema, and much more. So, without further ado, let's turn it over to Amanda Kramer and Harry Melling. Hi, I'm with Harry Melling, the most awesome. Hello! I did make a promise to everyone I wouldn't call you a genius, but I think I'll probably call you a genius five or six times, so I'm going to give up on that promise. I saw you in the Scottish play last eve. Amazing! You were wonderful. I have been waiting for that movie to come out for so long, but... You were absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Of course, you have the first, I don't think this is a spoiler, but you have the first visual line of the film. So I gasped. Yes. I wasn't expecting it. I thought I was going to be, you know, looking right at Denzel or something. I saw you, I gasped. And then I felt like the coolest person in the movie theater because I was like, (laughs) I know him. So goofy, but you were fantastic. (laughs) But that movie's gotten enough press, so I'm not going to give it anymore. Do you know what I mean? That movie is going to have enough love. (laughs) It's uh, Yeah, I mean, it's people seem to really be enjoying it, which is amazing, really, considering it's Shakespeare, and Shakespeare comes with so much sort of taboo and, and all sorts. I'm thrilled, really thrilled. I thought it was an incredibly lucid script. Like, it's so lucid when you watch it, actually. Yes, yeah. We had two weeks kind of fighting about that exact thing. How do you speak this language for film? That was what kind of two weeks of that rehearsal period was, just purely that. 
because it, it, you know, some people amongst the cast were far more rigid in terms of wanting to obey the iambic pentameter and, and the end of lines, etc. And some weren't. And yet it had to have a common language within the film, which is what I think Joel's genius was, actually, was the fact that everyone felt like they're in the same film, which I thought, considering how visually striking it was, I'm so glad there was a common sort of ground for every actor walking onto set, which was, I know exactly what film I'm in, which is part of the reason why I think it was so successful in terms of the cohesiveness of it. But I I agree, the whole language question was a huge question when we were rehearsing. I also love that everyone just has their own voice. I love your voice. I love your speaking voice. But obviously, you are not often speaking in your speaking voice in film. In fact, you weren't speaking in your speaking voice in my film. Yes. In our film. I miss your voice sometimes because I think you have such a specific, particular... It's not just your accent. It's like the timbre to your voice is, is you. And I miss it. It's somewhat like Andrea Risebro. She has never uses her voice. And so it's just yeah. <laughs> like, I'm always like, uh, when I talk to her in real life, I, I'm just confused, of course. But you opened your mouth and I, I heard Harry Melling and it was wonderful <laughs> to hear you do Shakespeare in your own voice. Oh, good, good, good. There was one version where we did start doing accents and it it very quickly fell apart. It very quickly fell apart. You know, all of us Brits doing American accents, all the American cohorts um, loosening it, like making it more RP. And it just kind of, it moved in a really funky way that was not useful for anyone. We don't do that. We don't want that. And the whole idea, we don't don't want that. And the whole idea of artifice became this other kind of, you know, we have enough the world is artificial enough in a strange way. We don't need people sort of pretending to, to do that alongside it. So, yeah. Do you feel like when you were a kid and you were, when you were a kid getting obsessed with acting in film, like were your heroes English actors? Were they American actors? Did you care more about American films? Did you like the Brits? Were they more like, did you see yourself in them or them in you or something like that? Or were you like a Hollywood kid? you like, Hollywood's cool. <laughs> That's your voice. <laughs> Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood. Um, I think I was the kid who loved theatre. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you see, you see, I just, I loved theatre. It was this mad, magical place that anything could happen in. And I think that's the thing I fell in love with more so than, than actors, per se, to begin with. I think it was the idea of being in a space and anything can happen, really. And then, of course, once I get into that whole thing, and then I became very interested in, in actors at the time, English actors, because that was the landscape I was in, in terms of the theatre world. And then from that, the whole uh, What Shall Not Be Named happened. Mm-hmm. And then film became a big part of my life and how, you know, you straddle both worlds. And actually, quickly going back to to your film, to our film, one of the most exciting things about it is the straddling of both those worlds. I watched it and thought, gosh, this is so theatrical. And I, I, of course it is, as I was wondering. Of course it is this kind of thing that straddles both a very cinematic landscape, but at the same time has these wonderful, bold choices from everyone, I think, in, in different ways. And so I think theatre was the thing that was my in And then everything kind of fell out from that point, I think. I'm going to read. uh, You're going to hate this. I can't wait to hear you 
after I say this. Um, but for the EPK, which, you know, is an annoying insider talk for electronic press kit. How dumb, right? <laughs> you know, I get I got asked the question, how did you come to Harry Melling? Why did you, you know, why did you cast him? What was the process like? And I just want to read my brief answer so that we can speak upon it. Okay. There was a long list of potential Arthurs coming at me, and I always wanted Harry at the top. When we first spoke, I told him I absolutely had to have him for the part. There was no doubt. I was very effusive, maybe too effusive. He is a brilliant romantic lead. His character work is sensitive and revelatory. You yearn for him and with him, and he's such a warm, synergenic presence on set. It's no wonder auteurs circle Harry. He remains believable. He wants to perform. Both he and Andrea are amazing professional dancers. His final dance of the film was the first thing he shot, night one of our schedule at 4 a.m. in 10-degree blustery Montana weather and watching in the monitor, I could feel Arthur's full character arc in Harry's body. It was as though we'd shot the entire movie already. That's the kind of elite emotional tracking Harry can do. His focus is inspiring. None of that is a lie. All of that is the truth. Um... I do want to talk about your dancing for a minute. Um, you are an incredible dancer, which is so, what I love is I, I told your agents when it was over, I said, oh, Harry is an incredible dancer. And one of your agents said, you should hear him sing. He has the voice of a bird, which, by the way, did not describe which bird. <laughs> there was no mention of which bird. Yeah, it was a, it was a fork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... You're an incredible dancer. Have you danced your whole life? I have, yeah. Are you trained? I'm, I wouldn't I wouldn't say trained. Do you tap? I do tap. <laughs> so I was as a kid, I was um I was fairly overweight. And yet I was adamant, adamant that I was going to be the most successful dancer that ever there was. And so mm-hmm. I used to sort of You're on track. go to every single go to <laughs> I go to ballet, you know, on track. So I'm going to get there one day. I went to ballet and tap, street dance, all, everything, everything that I could possibly do. Why? Did you just like dancers? Like, what was the allure? I just, I just love, I love dance. I loved movement, which is something I think I, I still have a real interest in, certainly in terms of character. I just really wanted to move. I was a very restless kid. So I just always, always wanted to be moving. And yeah, sadly, that whole thing kind of left when I was about 16. And I went, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. You got too cool. I got too cool. You know, there's other things to do. You got too cool. You're too cool. I want to be a very serious actor. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't act and do yeah. West Side. You know, you can't, you know, do Guys and Dogs. You can, you so can. Um, you, well, but I wanted to be a serious, serious actor. Yeah. You know, that was my new goal. So, uh it kind of just stopped from there, but I, I did love it. And often now I look back to dance shows and I'm just enamored by them completely. Yes. I'm determined for us to work together and for you, again and for you to do more dance and, and singing because I have to hear the bird. <laughs> the bird, as we, as we now will call you, the bird. <laughs> the sweet, sweet bird, yes. I do want to say on set with Harry, I tried to get him to talk shit probably every day. I just would be like, Harry... <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe, what a pussy, right? No, he wouldn't do it. So I just want everyone to know that Harry is a good, solid human who won't talk shit about anyone. I, on the other hand, am not a good, solid human. But, you know, there's the thing where you just like, you get energy at you. You don't necessarily want to be rude. You you want to be loved 
you need to be loved because we're in the business now of of loving, which is so odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very 21st century problem. Did Oliver Reed care about being loved? No, he did not. <laughs> he did not need to be loved by any means and probably wanted everyone to hate his guts or something. So it's just an odd thing because you have to sell yourself as the most gentle, loving soul. And then also, I don't know, act. It's too much. Yeah. And you remain a very private person, which I think is the only way to get through this. It's the only way. As a laugh once, I went to one of these websites that are incredible where it's like, Harry Melling, like, what are his stats? What does he like to drink? What does he like to eat? Because, you know, people make these sites that are obscene. And it's like, who is Harry Melling dating? Nothing. You can't find anything. And I love it. He's notoriously private. That's amazing. Well, you know, the stats that they can glean, but nothing (laughs) nothing that is like social media, nothing that is, you are private, which another mm-hmm. is another reason why you are a great actor, because you're going to surprise people for the rest of your career. You're going to take roles that are surprising and you are going to be surprising within them. And um, I think it's amazing. These websites are stumped. They fucking cannot figure you out. It's so great. You know, you are elusive. It's, so good to hear. it's cool. It's actually yeah. very chic of you to be elusive. I'm sick of knowing what everyone's doing. Yeah. Like, I don't want to see Jennifer Lawrence like mopping on Instagram, her house or something. <laughs> Forget it. I don't want it. You know, Yeah. I want to think that she dies and is born with every role. Like, I want the mystery. I want the mystery, Harry. But that's something that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, back in the day, you know, you were an actor and you were, you did these mysterious turns as these different things. And that was the focus. That was the, that's what what people wanted to kind of go to the cinema to see was these, you know, these transformations. But that is something we've lost, I think, in terms of what we feel we need um, in order for something to be exciting, for to grab an audience. We feel like we do need to watch them do everything in their life and mop the floor and decide what they're going to eat for dinner and I just that's just never interested to me you know I've never been I've never found that an interesting plus I'm so bad I went on Instagram for the first time the other day and I I put one post up and I thought oh I hated every bit of that experience yeah every single element we're so the same that way yeah I I hated I hated the fact that I had to think about what I wanted to show everyone, why I wanted to do it, what what am I going to choose for my first post. It just became so, like, the energy that was expelled with all those decisions I had to make just for one post. Like, I cannot do that. That is not yeah. something I can give myself over to. Well, you don't need to. I hope not. I mean, you're at the point in your career where you're beloved by audiences and and people are intrigued by you. But also, like I mentioned in the EPK, like auteurs want to work with you and they don't need to know like (laughs) the frippery of your daily life. They actually just want to see you do the part, which is incredible. I won't give anything away, but I can't because I don't know anything. But you are, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, about to play Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, yeah. This is so exciting for everyone. I have a really good question that I'm just dying to know, which is why do actors Mm -hmm. have such boners for playing real people? Can you explain this to me? Like, what what is the (laughs) obsession with the biopic? What is the obsession with being like, finally... (laughs) 
I am playing Winston Churchill. It's like, well, get your, Gary Oldman, you're fucking cooler than Winston Churchill. It's what so is true. It? And now you have to, now you have to stand up to that and you have to explain well, it to me. I am one of those, I am one of those guys again, those, yes. Uh, so, was, okay, this is, this is me talking shit. Right. So I was waiting outside to go and meet a, uh, um, a director and um, I bumped into a chum of mine who I haven't seen in a long time. We're talking years, and he will not be named. <laughs> Great. I, bu- I bumped into him, and uh, I haven't seen him, like, it must have been seven or so years, a long, long time. We did youth theatre together, and I said, oh, you know, how are you? What, what are you up to? And he said, yeah, I'm doing really well. I'm doing a biopic. And I was like, a what? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm doing, um, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing a biopic. And I thought, oh, so you make you're doing a film? No, no, no. I'm doing a, I'm doing a mm-hmm. <laughs> And I thought, what's the fucking difference? Like you do, you you're just doing a film. The fact that you're playing a real person holds no more weight than the fact that you're making a movie. And it, there is something that when actors play real yes. people and they can start going to the library and start reading about what they did and what they ate for breakfast, <laughs> there's something in that that makes actors go, oh my gosh. This is like this is this is golden. This is what I've been meant to do my whole entire life is work out who this person is. And I must admit, all that work is fascinating. Going to the library and reading about what they did and who they were is fascinating, but to a certain point, right? Otherwise, yeah. otherwise Did you, you just, do that? I, I did a bit of it, but then I soon I soon realized that the more I read about Edgar Allan Poe, the less choices i had with yeah him. it's like an impersonation however no one knows what he sound. i mean absolutely you are in a, a very elite position in which like nobody really knows what he sounded like there's like three photos of him people just know that he has some interesting facial hair yep nobody really knows so yep. you've got free reign you're in a great position to be absolutely. your to be your path your own path your own destiny with him right yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people mentioned this to me who I respected as actors. And I, I, I think, you know, that some very good friends said, as long as you get an essence of him, it's fine. Just get an essence of who he is. You don't need to kind of do every little bit and make sure that every small detail is there. You just need to get a feeling of what it must have been to, to be him. And I thought that was really useful because you can go down a rabbit hole of, no, 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 no. He, he's got to, his voice has to be this and it's going to be this and, and, and so forth. And uh, the point is to create something. It's not to try and regurgitate something you've read in a book. So uh, that was an interesting lesson. I'm in a weird position also because I did something when I was 11 years old that to this day still is the thing that is over my shoulder. So I kind of feel like anything I do from that point is going to be fine because they're still going to talk about the thing I did when I was 11. So Yeah, you have to play like Margaret Thatcher now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But still they go, oh, Dudley Dursley. And I'm okay, great guys. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> well done, everyone. Uh, yeah. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. 
For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. When we were in Montana, there was a coffee shop that we all went to that to get mm-hmm. our fancy coffee because we're assholes and need our fancy coffee. Sorry, that's just <laughs> the truth. Um, Harry especially is a huge coffee asshole. And w- you went off yeah, into this coffee no. shop. And one day I was in the coffee shop and the barista said to me, now we're masked, of course, it's during the pandemic. We're It's also snowing out. So we're also bundled up. You wear a beanie usually um, and have a big coat. Um, and the barista said to me, do you live in Montana? And I said, you know, yeah, lied. Why did I lie? Who knows? Just lied. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. Obviously, look at me. I live in Montana. And she said, I know this is the strangest thing to say, and it doesn't make any sense, but I think the man who played Dudley in Harry Potter is in Montana, and he's coming in and getting coffee. I mean, the look on, like, she even realized that she thought that she was losing her mind. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, really? What? That's so strange. Maybe he's shooting something. So weird. Yeah. And she said, I want to say something. And I said, oh, no, I don't think you should. It might not be him. Tried to save your ass. Oh, man. <laughs> From a local barista just screaming at you. Well, you've got my back in those situations. You've got my back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to go everywhere with you and just be batting people away, smacking people left and right. It's weird. It, what happened was it was it was interesting. I I kind of the last well the last year's been been different, but for another reason. But before that, I would never get recognised. Like never. I would not need a beanie. You know nothing. But ever since the Queen's Gambit, people have put <laughs> that and then that together and going, oh my gosh. And so now I have, a, you know, it's, it's more difficult to be wandering streets and so forth, all because people have put those things together, but before they hadn't, so I just kind of went about. But it is a weird, it's a weird thing, and I'm still not used to it. Were you expecting that to be such a phenomenon? No way. We, we all weren't. It was the thing <laughs> about chess. I mean, like, it's such a niche, niche subject. Totally. I, I, I thought the script was great. I thought um, Scott Frank, who wrote it and directed it, is, is just a, brilliant. But we all know, you knew this is a very niche subject matter. This is this is a very interesting story. And um, let's make it and let's just get it out on Netflix. But then it just took on this whole 
other life. I think the lockdown, we had a lockdown it's you. here, I think. It's you. I th- it's me. That's the, the sole reason why is me. I mean, I think it's you. I think it was something to do with the lockdown and people getting board games out, chess being reintroduced to people's worlds and just the timing of it. But that's often the case with these things. Like, so often people come up to you and go, what do you think of this? Do you think it's going to be successful? I think I can also say that content right now is absolutely horrible. Content is, I mean, we're in a phase where like, it's just the worst of the worst. And when something is made so beautifully and acted so beautifully, Mm -hmm. people remember that they crave that. They remember that they want that, that they don't just want to be given the algorithm. They want a good story. It was a great story. So I want to ask you a little bit about your process as far as getting scripts. You know, I presume you get a lot of franchise scripts. I presume you're on, Mm -hmm. you're in the track to be like, People maybe send you villain roles for Marvel. I'm guessing. I don't know everybody. I don't know. But I'm guessing you are given like the classic brilliant character actor pieces of larger franchise movies. I presume you get huge scripts that are already going. And then you get some independent smaller scripts. How are you reading? How are you choosing? I try and read everything that I can. I try and read everything. And how do I choose? It's just a feeling, like, it's a feeling of that interests me, that doesn't interest me. Sometimes I get told that things that I'm not so interested in, I should be interested in, and therefore I need to sort of read them again with a certain, a certain different perspective in <laughs> a mind. A drink. <laughs> yeah. Um, a drink, maybe a drink. A stiff maybe drink, a, yeah. <laughs> how much money? Um, but... Uh, so it, it, that's that's kind of how I do it. It's it's something that I don't have a game plan like some people do. I don't have a oh I need to do my my biopic. I, there's none of that going on. I just I try and choose what in that moment interests me, and it is as simple and as hard as that. And so sometimes you can go without reading something that takes you for quite a while, and you just have to trust that you know something will will happen. Before doing Edgar, there was there was a patch where I was like, oh, you know, nothing really is. Yeah, you're picky, which is great. Grabbing, I, yeah, which is great. Well, I, I th- yeah, but I, I wasn't always picky. I think like when you're starting out, you just want to do as much as you can, and then when you do that, you realise the things that fit and the things that don't fit. Like, oh, that didn't fit for me because of X, Y, and Z, and oh, that fitted because we had like two weeks prep and the, we were constant conversations with the director that worked for me that worked for my process and then other things won't work for you and, and so you learn from that from those early experiences what to look for in future projects but to go back to um your script your script was the quickest yes i think i've ever made how cool i think i've ever made and you're still being honest right 100 percent honest it was one of the quickest yeses I've ever made because your first, like even the description of the young gents on the first page and what they do and how they're introduced, I was like, who the fuck is this writer? <laughs> and like, why is she writing a script as beautifully as this? You know, it wasn't just it wasn't just a dialogue that had this kind of poetic wit to it. It was the whole thing, you know? Thank it was you. it was extraordinary. And I just knew that if I was lucky enough to be in it, I had to be in it. And th- those are the feelings that you're always striving for. 
I think, as um, as an actor. Those films going, oh my word, this is so exciting. I've never read anything like this. How do I get involved in this? That's the feeling that I always crave. And of course, it's not always going to be that. And some things you take for different reasons, like, oh, that will introduce me to this way of working, which is something I need to do more so. And so it's all a process. But to say there's a game plan, I think, is a stupid analogy for any actor, really, because you never know what's going to take off. Like a thing about chess took off, yeah. which, is, which was which was strange. So you just never know. You never know what's going to what is going to be the thing. Well, I remember when we I mean, I, I cast you with like, you know, like. It was like one of those moments where it felt like just trumpets were blaring and like confetti was being thrown everywhere. I was like, I did it. You know, I was so happy. Um, I told everybody, everybody was a little like, oh, how did you get him? Like everyone gave me a little shit. Like, oh, how did you get him? And I was like, well, (laughs) he read my script and he liked it. Um, I was bragging, of course, and I will continue to brag for the rest of my life that we work together and are friends. It's a joy. It's a joy, really. But I, I, we got to set. I, of course, was there early um, in in prep before you arrived, which was a pain in the ass to get you from England. Oh my word! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought every day I was like, he's never getting on that plane. He's not getting to America. <laughs> like we are screwed. And then you got here, and everything was fine. And the week of rehearsal, I kept being like, Hey, Harry, do you want me to? run lines with you or do you want me to? Because what nobody knows is I, of course, did not audition Harry. Never. I knew I wanted him. I didn't need (laughs) any of that bullshit. You you really could have, though. You really could have done, just so you know. There was no reason to do it, but we had never done it. (laughs) And we're days from starting. And I keep going, Harry, do you want me to? And Harry's like, no, I'm fine. And I'd be like, Okay. <laughs> Try again. And Harry would be like, no, I'm this, fine. I was like, maybe I should say yes. But like I kind of I kind of feel that I kind of feel like I'm good on this one, but maybe I should have said yes. And Andrea did this Andrea Riseborough did the same thing. And I thought, okay, maybe this is just how the Lambda Rada geniuses are walking around in the world. They're like, <laughs> we don't need it. Okay, frankly, we don't need it. Go talk to one of the Americans. We don't need it. So I'm thinking, okay, everything is is all set. And but as I'm getting closer, I'm, I was getting nervous, frankly, mainly mm-hmm. because I had never heard what voices either of you were going to use. I didn't know if you were going to do strong New York accents. I didn't really know mm-hmm. any of it. And so I do remember this: the very first night, the two of you were together in costume, and you were shooting your first scene. I had like an emotional breakdown. I walked up to the two of you and I was like, I can't believe how good you're being. Not because I didn't think you would be good, but I was, I had not even seen an instant of it before we were rolling. Mm -hmm. That is such a trust fall. And of course, with the two of you, I never regretted for one second the trust. I tell people all the time, I barely directed you. I felt like you knew exactly what to do. You a great Harry story from set, um, if you don't mind, Harry. I do. I caught you once looking at, everyone was setting up. You know, Harry likes to come to set, look at look at the set, look at the lights, like just be there, just walk around, you know, not get in anyone's way, but just, you know, be present in the room, see what is coming. And of course, Harry is welcome to do that. And you get to set and I see you go up to a prop and you're like fucking with the prop, but by yourself in the corner. You're not like bothering anybody, but like I'm watching you 
And I'm just seeing you interact with it, like how heavy it is and like what it's going to feel like to pick up and how you want to pick it up. And do you want to like bring it closer to your face? And I is one of the most amazing moments of a director's career to almost like an invisible fly get to watch (laughs) an actor they have such respect for do such a strange intrinsic thing. Mm -hmm. I was just so alert to it. And then when I watched Mm -hmm. you do each take, I realized that you had already sort of mastered the prop. You understood how to use it and how you would use it. And in each take, you used it a slightly different way. Um, Mm -hmm. This is like nobody else I've ever worked with. A very specific and beautiful thing. So I just, I think about that sometimes, how we had no preparation and yet you showed up and, and really just knew exactly what to do or maybe or maybe I just picked the right person and therefore that's the <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like maybe it's, it's not about I do but it's a ma- I always think when when directors say uh I want you to do this there is a bit of me that goes are you, are you sure like, are you are you 100% sure because the act of faith you guys have to make in terms of I am going to give my script that I've spent X amount of time making and drafting up and making it as perfect as I possibly can to you. And that is my gift to you. And now it's your job to try and make whatever you will from it. And I always think that is one of the most generous acts that someone can do. Um, and I also think what a mad leap into the dark. <laughs> and to the abyss, Because it is an act of faith on a writer-director's part to go, there you are. And so I can I completely understand where this where this nervous breakdown came from, which was you know is this going to be what is in my head, um, or is this going to is this any version of what it can be that I, I've thought up in my head? I was just so proud, so proud of what you saw in Arthur, mm. who I think on the page, you know, which no one will ever get to know, on the page was somewhat neurotic, but also mainly just a struggling, sort of sad, hopeful, odd, you know, man. Yeah. More specific than that, but just generally. And you gave him such a, you gave him an odd rage where I was so excited sometimes to see you get angry, which was not in the script. Mm-hmm. Um but to work toward that the repression that he feels, the sexual repression, you sort of matched it with sort of an aggressive repression. I just, mm-hmm. I loved it. That is like being pampered because you cannot expect that of almost <laughs> anyone else. You really can't. Yeah. Many people will, you don't rehearse with them and then you see them do it and you're like, oh, fuck, this is bad. And not bad, bad, but wrong, bad, or right? Because there's the movie in my mind, there's the movie in your mind, and then there's the movie mm-hmm. we will inevitably make together. And that's the only one that exists because we're on those mm-hmm. timelines will never be seen. So to think that the one in my mind was made such better by the one in your mind, that's the only gift really that there can be, right? Ah, oh, that's such a kind thing to say. That is such a kind thing to say. But you said something amazing. I remember when we first started out, which was the the film, the most interesting version of this film is the version that belongs to both of us. And um, that's not always the way on film sets. You know, sometimes you are trying to definitely 
do something for a director and fulfill exactly what they want. And that can be, in certain instances, quite a hard thing to do as an actor because you as well, I feel, work best when there's an invitation to to take on what that person has um, has written for you. But you said that very early on and I thought, right, okay, here we go. And um, and also you allowed, you didn't direct us because you allowed us to play. You allowed such fun and and playfulness to happen, which is where these things came from. Well, there were often times when Andrea would do something and I would think to myself, oh my God, what is she doing? What is that? And I would see, of course, I would love it. I would be so nervous for you. Like, is he going to respond in kind? Like, does he even want to be responding? And you would just without even losing a beat, just be right there with her. An incredible scene partner, somebody who never ruined an improvised take. And she doesn't ruin your improvised takes. You guys are both Mm -hmm, sort of, mm -hmm. you have that sort of symbiotic thing of like, I'm not going to break. You're going to do a weird thing where you bark like a dog. Like, I'm just going with it. I mean, you're going to slam the table and I'm not (laughs) expecting you to. Absolutely. And those are the takes I used. So I guess because it's the end of the year and, you know, it's just a regular thing on everyone's mind. Like, how do you get away with not feeling regret for films, for roles, for performances, for even minor choices? Like, I don't know what your process is if you watch your films or if you watch yourself or if you judge yourself. But I would like to hear about that because... I don't even like photos of myself. Well, I'm not an actor, but a a photo of myself from being 17 is like, shoot me dead, please, before anybody. (laughs) Um, And I'm lucky. I am from before the internet, so I can be obscured. Um, You cannot, but also because you're an actor. Yeah. Um, So how do you deal with that, with remorse over anything, over any part? over any choice in a part. Yeah, I think I think the world has changed in terms of self-taping now is such a thing. So actors kind of need to get with the programme in terms of watching stuff back. Because you have to. You have to go, okay, this one send, this one send. <laughs> so that's, that's the thing that... That's part of the process of acting now is watching yourself back and deciding which one you want to send. Um, in terms of filming, I do watch everything back, but I'm very aware of the things and the triggers that might happen whilst watching that back. I mean, I don't really ever watch myself back and go, wow, <laughs> you are... I know, I asked you what you thought. Amazing! I asked you what like, you thought when you watched the movie. I said, did you enjoy yourself? And you said, as much as one can, which I think as is... As much as one can. As much as one can. I think that's it, though, right? As, as long as you're not going... Oh, my word. (laughs) As long as it's not mortifying, it's fine. And the point is, it's not about watching yourself back at the the premiere. It really isn't. I love love watching the thing as the whole to see what directors and and the whole production have done to things. I, I, I find that fascinating. I loved watching Please Baby, Please Back so, so much for that very reason, because it was so everything I wanted it to feel like and be. But in terms of my own performance, I can't ever properly have an opinion on that. I can have an opinion on other people's works and what I think is successful and what isn't successful. But my own work, it's very hard to do that because it just is. So I like to put my energy into the making it, not this sort of the watching it back. But it is an interesting thing, isn't it? The fact that I was thinking this the other day, when you do a film 
what is the point at which it actually happens? You know, what is the point at which that scene is that scene? Because there's no point in time where it is. You make it, you film it, you then edit it, you then put all the sound together, you then grade it, you then... So at what point is that scene that we see at the cinema, when did that happen? And the truth is it's happened over effectively a year or whatever, however long it takes. And that is quite a confusing thing as an actor to comprehend. Whereas with theatre, it's much simpler. Do you ever get in do you ever get in bed at night and go, well, there that fucking goes? Like you're on set, <laughs> you've been waiting for a big scene, a big moment. Suddenly you're in bed, you're like, I don't do that again. I've been waiting to give those lines. Yeah, that's that. Does that come with any pain? Like in that moment at least. Not not pain, but I think I think the more and more I do it. I'm surprised that the mo- the scenes or the moments in which you go, that is something that I need to be ready for and to hit and to make sure that lands in a particular way. And then maybe it doesn't. Maybe it lands in a different way. To not beat yourself up about it because inevitably there's going to be another moment that you just kind of went, Ugh, you know, you just haven't really looked at. And then suddenly the director will say, I think in this moment you're doing a cartwheel and you're sort of doing something else. And suddenly you do that and that will unlock something completely different. So I like to think that hopefully those moments balance themselves out because there is there is a potential danger in putting too much pressure on something, a particular moment when you come to it. There just is naturally. Of course. Have you ever wanted to go up to a director and be like, do not use that take. Please do not use that take. Do not do that to me. Like, have you ever wanted to? Just be like, dear God, come on, come on, please. There's been a few takes that I do because we also, I think it's important. We have to fail, right? We have to fail. That's kind of where good art lives is the risk. So you have to, you have to be shit and you have to do all the other things that may not be, hopefully not make the film. But um, if I do do a take, I'm like, wow, that was so (laughs) bad. I was like, one of the that was some of the worst acting I've ever done, and it could be even like taking a note from. And I've done this. I'm thinking about one now, but I, taking a note on and then just go, yeah, that's really good. Note, that's really good. Note. I'm going to go really go for it, and then you go for it, and it's like I went for that <laughs> so hard and so bad, and I hope that never sees the light of day. But you don't say you're anything. Just go. You know what? You don't. You don't. You can't. You can't. You can't. Wow. It's not yours. It's not yours. It's theirs. I could not give it's up theirs. control like they, that. I could not give up control. They, yeah, that's. It is. It is an act of faith. On your act of faith with me and Andrea being together, and I remember that outside for the first time, and going, you know, is this going to work? Is this going to be the two people? It's exactly the same for us. We have to go. There you go. You can use whatever you want from that. It's the same. Which I guess is why you have to like your director. You have to trust your director. You have to have, you have to think that they're going to do you right. And that they're not just going (laughs) to shit all over you. That's so brutal though. That really is so brutal. But you're not, you never see yourself and go, that was shit. I'm because you give such great performances and you have, I think a healthy ego, Harry, where you're like, not vain in any way, but you know when you've done mm-hmm. something well. And I think that comes with your training and and a decade, two decades, you know, it's going to be three decades soon, dear God, of acting <laughs> and just being in the profession yeah. and just sort of being the not only a consummate professional, but also being prepared. And you're very prepared. Yeah. So surprise is good, though. Also, surprise is good. I'm often surprised at things that I felt didn't feel as good. And when I watch back, I'm like, no, actually, that 
that makes sense. And then stuff that felt very good can can sometimes like not come off in the way that you had envisioned it coming off. It's a very strange medium that you can't quite trust. You just need to trust the process and and give yourself over to it and and be available to sort of being manipulated. I think that's the key in a way. And are you ever in the position of seeking out work? Or are you ever like, I want this thing, or I want this type of role, I want this director, I want something like, or do you like to say, I would really love to try a musical, a horror film? Like, are you ever in a, a headspace where you feel as though you want something? Are you ever looking? Um, I think I, I think I am looking, but probably not in a proactive way. I think I'm looking <laughs> in the... Do you know what I mean? It's weird. I, I know what I want to do. I, I'm very... I'm very I know that that's very definite. And a lot of people, a lot of my friends say, wow, you really know what you want to do, what you don't want to do. But I won't necessarily look for it. I will want to receive it. And then from that, give an offer of something that I think might work from it or or um, or, or pursue that. Um, I did write a play once. And that was something that was very much me wanting to tell a story about something I don't know if I would feel so comfortable if I if I said to myself, do you know what, I really want to be in a musical? And then went, okay, write me a musical. Because there's something, but there's I would. something about See, that. See, if you called me and you <laughs> were like, Amanda. <laughs> Amanda, what I really want to do is do a tap dance. I want to play Helen Mirren in the Helen Mirren biopic. <laughs> Please write it for me. I would say, you know, Harry, that's a great idea. Yes. I'll get started that's tonight. A great idea. It's going to work. I think we should adapt your play for the screen, you and I. It would, I think, yeah, I would love that. I think I was thinking about that the other day. Build something just really iconic. Build you a beautiful set. Yeah, let you let you do the entire thing by yourself. Really, um, yeah. <laughs> that's it's a it's a lot. Yeah, it's a beautiful play. I, I read it. I, I'm lucky enough to to have read it. I'm unlucky enough to have not seen it. So that's why I say mm. we should adapt it. But I'm curious, too, about English films and how you feel about being in English films. Because you, you have not moved to America. Well, you were an education, Amanda. I can't yeah. believe that. That makes me so mad at you. Aren't You should be watching Mike Lee and Ken Loach like this is what they exist for. They exist for I little, little Londoners. <laughs> <laughs> well, my Mike Lee was good, to be fair. My Mike Lee was strong. But Peter Greenaway was a revelation for me. Yes, he's... Do you remember that? Peter, you going, have you seen this film? And I was like, no, never heard of him. And you were like, <laughs> what? What? I said you're English. And that was revelatory. <laughs> like, you're English. You should have. You should know who Peter Greenaway is. I, like, I have no idea who Peter Greenaway is. Sorry. And you you managed to get me a version of... Um, I'm going to say the title wrong because there's so many bits. His mother, his cook. The cook, yes. the, wa- <laughs> the, cook the wife, the mother, and yes. his wife. <laughs> and <or> Jesus. <laughs> And uh, Jesus and everyone else. And it was, it just, I was like, how on earth have I not come across this? So you were a massive part of my English education. I think if you do love English actors, if you love English filmmaking, there's just so much brilliance. And I I do think that you are just the top of the top of the tippy top. You are one of my favorite actors living. It's humiliating. I know. Um, but you are just the best. And I told you when I met you, I was like, oh, my favorite actors are Oliver Reed and Dirk Bogard. And now Harry Melling. What a, what a trinity <laughs> of, of divine freaks. 
right? True freaks. Oh yeah, no. I mean, to be to be even be thinking of myself amongst such men. This is you are the least drunk of all of them, so you're going to have to catch up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm still young. I've got time. Um, You've got time. That is just the most extraordinary thing to say. So thank you so much. Like working with you was just a joy. But you know that, so I don't need to say that again. I can't wait till we do it again. I can't wait to see you again. I miss you, Harry. I know. You too. You too. It's been a time. It's been a time. I can't believe you guys are shooting on the East Coast. It's such a bummer. Or I would show up on set every day I and know. be like, Hi! Um, please enjoy the rest of the holiday with yours um, and, you and enjoy you your too. family before yes. you have to Quoth the Raven, nevermore. We're all just dying to see that. Uh, It'll be like Macbeth. It'll be like, I'm waiting for way too long to see you again on screen. Um, A shameless plug for us. Our film is uh, opening the Rotterdam Film Festival, which is at the end of... This month, January. It's at the end of January. Um, and I just can't wait every for everyone to see Harry Milling play Arthur. That will be such a divine pleasure to have us linked uh, in all forever, really, forever. Yeah. I'm going to be on your Wikipedia page. <gasps> <laughs> so amazing. The elusive Harry Melling's Wikipedia page with no information on it. No stats whatsoever. No stats. He is a ghost of a ghost of a man. <laughs> I adore you, Harry. I will talk to you soon. Talk very soon. Talk very soon. Please don't be your typical self and take forever to get back to me. I know, I'm the worst. worst. (laughs) No, you're living a life. So that's how it should be. Um, You're not online, you're living a life. I'm phones, yeah, well, yeah. You're the best, Amanda, you really are. You're the best, thank you. You're amazing. Have a happy new year, Harry. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much to Harry Melling and Amanda Kramer for being on the TalkCast podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Please Baby Please premieres this week at the International Film Festival Rotterdam. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkCast podcast theme music, as ever, was composed and performed by The Range. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com film, and go check out a number of pieces by Amanda. Subscribe to the TalkCast podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you got your podcasts, and go dig into our archives. I'm Nick Dawson, and until next time, take it easy, and stay safe.